Arboria. And welcome to Yeah But the podcast. I'm Vivian Gabor, and I'm really excited uh, because this week we're bringing you part two of the Gay Icons podcast that I did in school last semester. Hopefully, you really, really super enjoyed last week's episode. Um, And this week, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the political side of things and capitalism, and you know, all those fun things that us gays like to talk about when we're trashing our country's politics. So (laughs) here we go. discuss further the idea of gay icons and what they mean to our community. In the last episode, we discussed a brief timeline of celebrity worship within the gay community following trends of feminine versus masculine ideals and how politics may play a role in what we expect from our icons. Today, we'll be digging further into the topic of commodification. We currently live in a world where we have no illusion of privacy. It is well documented that our information is being bought and sold right and left. The sites we visit, the items we purchase, the followers we acquire, all of these things mean more to the world of commerce than they perhaps even do to us. So what does that have to do with the gays? Well, let's begin with the most well-documented examples. In the 90s, we saw a rise in the number of gay-centered television programming such as Queer as Folk, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, even The L Word. Niche television stations such as Logo popped up, filling a gap in the programming, catering to a gay audience. But along with this came the realization of how profitable the pink dollar could be. In an article titled, Pink Dollars, White Collars, Queer as Folk, Valuable Viewers, and the Price of Gay TV, written in 2011, author Wendy Peters notes that, in an assessment of the perceived value of the quote-unquote pink dollar, 
television station Logo estimated the gay market as having $835.3 billion in buying power. She goes on to say that the media is a part of the larger social process of creating identities for lesbians and gays. However, this is not suggesting a hypodermic needle model of communication where media fills passive viewers with beliefs and identities, but rather a postmodern one in which media operate alongside other systems of regulation and control, such as law and medicine, in the production, circulation, and naturalization of discourses concerning sexual identities, practices, and desires. But how are these things being sold to us? Well, it just so happens that I'm friends with someone who works in the tourism industry and who would know better how audiences are commodified. Uh, My name is Trevor Chauvin DeCaro. I am a project manager for the Department of Tourism, NYC Tourism and Conventions. So here's the thing. We know we live in a capitalistic society, but what does that have to do with celebrities? And what does that have to do with queer culture? Yeah, I think the who we latch on to answer has a lot to do with that's what we're fed for the most part it's like how much control do we really have over who we idolize and how much of it is strategized and you know there's this sort of unspoken rule for a pop diva you win the gays then that, that that's it like you're good if you win the gays But now it just feels like there is a formula. You get people of color and the gays and the hetero white cis world takes from those cultures and adopts it as their own. So I think that there is a formula of get the gays and get the people of color and that equals pop success. It's kind of gross, right? Get the Gaze has become a formula used across the board in recent years. All you have to do is walk into a Target or a Walmart or turn on YouTube around Pride season and you'll see the newest iteration of this marketing tactic. Nowadays, it's known as rainbow washing. According to Michaela Rush in an article entitled True Colors or Rainbow Washing Exposed, For the review of the Institute for Language and Culture of Europe, America, Africa, Asia, and Australia, there appears to be a less genuine interest in the LGBTQ plus agenda in contrast to commercial ambitions. This impression partially proves the marketing and profit only approach. That is, in general, companies are more interested in making money by putting a rainbow on their product than they are in following through on the ideals held by the queer community. This means that while these companies may be sporting flashy colors during the month of June, their money is still being donated to causes that are in direct opposition to LGBTQ plus issues. Rush further explains that, Companies quickly dive into marketing campaigns for various reasons, focusing on the commercial side only. However, when they start displaying symbols like that of the LGBTQ plus community, then genuine inclination must be given to keep the credibility. As pointed out before, the rainbow flag constitutes a political symbol. It reflects that openness and sensitivity regarding diversity are essential to environments where they plan to display it on the product. 
While I read that article, I kept thinking over and over about celebrities and how they targeted their audiences. This brought me back to my initial question at the beginning of the last episode. Are we drawn to the Cindy Loppers, or are we drawn to the Madonnas? Cindy has devoted her life to charity work, even stepping away from performing as a way to make sure she is doing all she can. Meanwhile, and I know there are many in the gay community who won't like this assessment, Madonna continues to perform and make sure her seats are filled by casting conventionally hot men as backup dancers, getting lap dances on stage, even showing images of AIDS victims behind her as she performs. Obviously, I cannot say with certainty that Madonna cares more for her pocketbook than the community she caters to, but I do see some correlation with what I have found in my research of commodification. Rainbow washing one's product creates a market for the pink dollar, and that dollar, as we have already established, is worth a lot. Okay, we've talked ad nauseum about the 90s. What about the 2000s? What about this world we have created via social media? For that, I need to turn to someone younger than myself. Hello, my name is Evelyn Peterson. I am a 23-year-old aspiring actor, dancer, singer, Shakespeare performer in New York City. So what I really want to know is what part has the internet played in establishing a vocabulary for our community? How has it been used as a tool? I mean, I know for me that when I was like younger, I was looking at videos of girls kissing. So I like think that the internet for me personally and people like my age who are like Gen Z, especially, I think that we um, can really learn things about ourselves through it. And I think that we can also like connect with other people. I mean, like chat rooms are like not a new thing. Like chat rooms were like the original, like of what I'm saying. Like, I think that now it's more like acceptable. And so like people can like express how they're feeling. Like I follow a, like a lot of trans creators who will just like, they, they treat the internet like their diary, you know, because they can, they can do whatever they want. And, but it's interesting, like watching them dissect their own feelings of their dysphoria and their internalized homophobia or misogyny or all these things. And like, it's really something we have never seen before. Like we have so much access to it. And I strangely think that like, it's also helped straight people more almost. Like, I think the exposure of like seeing all these different creators, especially I think of like Dylan Mulvaney. I think that she is like a huge proponent of people like maybe meeting, like, you know, having a parasocial relationship with a trans person. Like, I don't think people in like, you know, certain like parts of America, especially like where that's the community is not as prevalent. I think that's a first. And I think that's, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's a scary thing because people will just say whatever they want on comments and that's, really sad and but no i think that like it's really um i don't want to say that it's helped but i i will say that it's like it's changed it like i think it's changed like the way we interact with so we've gotten to a place where we've democratized career. information whether or not people take advantage of it people are able to learn about different types of people different sexualities different parts of the world but how does that affect our relationship with celebrities are we less inclined to put them on a pedestal? Oh my God. I think we like, and I'm starting to see this on, I'm on TikTok a lot. 
clearly. But I'm starting to notice there's a small pocket of TikTok that is starting to get annoyed with how high of a pedestal we put celebrities on. And not just celebrities, but also influencers. I've noticed whenever there's like a world conflict happening or just like an American thing, like when like Roe v. Wade was being overturned or BLM or when anyone, like any like marginalized group was getting attacked and people were spreading information and talking about it and all this stuff. People were so quick to cancel celebrities or cancel influencers who weren't like immediately like responding to it. And then this new train of thought came around where people were like, hey, maybe um, we shouldn't rely on celebrities and influencers to get all of our information and opinions about the world and about political social matters and foreign affairs. Like, I don't think that these people are equipped to like give us the information we need to form our own opinions. And I'm starting to become a part of that train of thought because I, I'm, I'm not asking, you know, I'm not asking Brittany Broski to like inform me on like the complexities of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Like, I'm not gonna ask RuPaul to like explain why I should like vote against Trump. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm a person who can like form their own like opinions, but it's interesting like watching kids like myself who grew up so intensely on the internet starting to want to detach from it and not worship these icons as much anymore. And like, we still love them and we still like their content and we still like their music, but I think it's having like a boundary almost in a parasocial relationship, which is really interesting to see happen in real time. Like it's being like, okay, like I can like this person, like I can like what they have, but I need to like be able to form my own opinions. It's, it's really interesting to watch in real time. This brings up an interesting point. Celebrity doesn't mean the same thing as it used to. We have all sorts of delineations as to what we call someone at multiple levels of fame. Legend, star, D-lister, influencer, micro-influencer, Twitter celebs, even porn stars. So what does this hierarchy look like? Do we need different things from different types of celebrities? One of the best examples I can think of today in terms of a niche celebrity is drag queens. With RuPaul's Drag Race taking the world by storm, we are seeing more and more minor celebrities crop up who don't necessarily have the same form of fame that we've seen in the past. These celebrities can go grocery shopping without being recognized, but as soon as they set foot in a gay bar, they will be swamped with requests for pictures. I knew I needed to talk to one of my New York City sisters to discuss this trend. So my name is Anselmo and my drag name is Chola Spears. And I'm a drag queen here in New York City. And uh, I've been doing drag for about seven years. I went to school for a musical theater at AMDA. And after I got out of AMDA, I wrote a play that was produced at the Here Center. And then I took a long break and that's when I discovered drag. What do you think? Do you think that this concept of a celebrity hierarchy has anything to it? Um, I think so. I think that there are, um, I think there are like tiers, you know, even though I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, she's definitely way up there in terms of like fans and stardoms and queer icons and stuff like that. Um, I don't listen to Judy Garland a lot or I don't listen to like Barbara a lot, but they are way up there too. Um, so I do think that there are tiers based off of longevity, based off of artistic accomplishments, 
and I don't mean like awards, but I just mean like smash hits, smash albums, great videos. And then um, I think also like their contribution to queer communities for real. I think that that plays a huge part. And I think that we respond to those people. And I think um, also those people are already on our team when they do that stuff. You know what I mean? I feel like gays can pretty much feel a queer, you know, icon when she's born. <laughs> um, so yeah, I do think there are tears to that. And I do think there are uh, some fandoms who I, who I think are strong, but very weird and toxic and, you know, all kinds of tears and exceptions and, you know, they're, they're in tier A, but you know, I can't stand their fans. Or okay. But girl, what is it about drag? Why are people so obsessed with it all of a sudden? And does it have any sort of role to play in our idea of what makes an icon? I think that, um, I think it plays that part. Okay. So like big, uh, we're talking about uh, me right now, Chola Spears. The Britney thing has the Britney thing has given me like, like almost low key a purpose a little. You know what I mean? Like I'm not saying that I single handedly freed her, but uh, you know, there's been a few times where I'm like, okay, like I'm glad I'm Britney fan. I'm like doing something or spreading awareness in this world. And then we have like the Megans who are just giving us just a fierceness. You know what I mean? It's like it, it's drag. It's like little girl who knows karate. It's like horror. It's giving us a whole bunch of different like small things. I think that's kind of, I think that is what it is. It's just like, there are fundamentals that gays want out of their idols. There's like a fierceness, there's a duality. There is a, um, there is a strength and there is a, um, like an individualism and if they give it to us on any kind of like level whether it's megan the little mustard seeds seed size version of it or if it's britney where it's like you're feeding the seven-year-old in me and you're also feeding the 30-year-old in me then then that but it's the same thing like smaller size you know for gay people the world can be a not nice place or it can be scary, or it can be this, or, or any version of, of scary or lonely. And I think um, camp just reminds us that, um, that it's just all, not fake, but you know how the difference between like, how people treat you in drag to how people treat you out of drag, like it's that, it's a reminder that like, this, this is all different. So we're attracted to camp because it allows us to express ourselves and enjoy a life that is difficult for us, a sort of escapism. It's a reminder that we don't have to fit in, that we can stand out. Pop icons do the same thing for us. We see them as people who have overcome the odds, imagined or not, and have risen to a place of belonging in this world. Something I've noticed, however, is there seems to be a trend with the celebrities that we really hold up as the pinnacle of stardom. They all seem to be white, cisgender, and often blonde. You know, I've never really thought about that part. You know, I've always been such a, like, you know, bimbo fan for the most part. Um, but I think that there is a certain degree of, it's just like, what we've painted as beautiful in society. And I think that me being like, 
Um, so I am Mexican and I grew up in a Mexican family that, you know, had traditions and, you know, through parties and things like that and listening to Spanish music. But we were um, a family that was like new to living in the suburbs and we were trying to be as like, you know, suburban family as we could. And because of that, my mom did not teach us Spanish because she always dealt with like adult things and adult conversations in Spanish. I think there are parts of like whiteness in the American dream. And I think that those things bleed out into our like subconscious and who we support. And I think that also like there is a level of scrutiny and a lack of support with other races and and even people who are i mean we have people who fucking shit on beyonce to this day she's been like floating in air in dubai covered in smoke doing riffs that last 45 motherfucking seconds and we still have people online being like she can't sing and i think that um i think that part of what makes people successful in this country is that either support or that scrutiny and i think that um I think that a lot of those things have to do with like race and like privilege and like and I think that I think that is the toxic part of being a fan or like choosing your fandom and like um and that gets even more toxic when you start arguing with someone else who is a different fan and you decide to say something race I mean like the Nicki Minaj and Cardi B fans are so racist towards each other and it's I'm just flabbergasted because those girls are damn near this. They're not the same color, but three or four shades away from each other. You know what I mean? Like y'all not even arguing with like a white girl and a black girl and y'all are still just so nasty. So I do think that there, I think that maybe the root of that is not the best, but there are so many amazing, again, with visibility, there's so many amazing women now, like Beyonce, Normani, Megan Thee Stallion, um, even Sexy Red people are just like, you know, so captivated with her right now. Like. Um, hopefully that changes and hopefully um, if it doesn't change there is more of a platform for those girls to come up even if there are haters or people who who judge but but yeah I mean as a Britney fan besides you know puberty and all that stuff and partying I, I think it might be part of like what people see as like being a good American and, and whiteness and normalizing all that stuff in this country as like the right way and i think that older generations definitely strive for that a little bit more than you know all the kids now who are fucking proud of who they are and where they come from and really want everybody to know that and you know which is amazing we've been sold a dream whether we like it or not we've bought into it we've been naturalized into a world that extols the virtues of one kind of person while putting down all other kinds. Racism is a rampant problem in our world, we know that. But have we really stopped to consider the ways in which it has infiltrated even the most basic parts of our enjoyment of pop culture? It would do us a lot of good to take note of the celebrities we criticize the most, the stars we try to cancel the fastest, and the people we hold up as icons. There's one more side to this that I need to address, however, and that is a side we do have some control over. If you've been reading between the lines of these past two episodes, 
you've heard it lurking there, ready to rear its ugly head. There's an idea that with the faux closeness we have experienced via social media, we are becoming too intimate with our ideas of celebrities' lives. We think we are them, or at the very least, that we can influence them. Someone that came up multiple times in each of the interviews I did for this podcast in terms of their relationship with their fans was Taylor Swift. Taylor is a genius at manipulating her fan base, and she, her and her team are a genius and have boiled the power of social media down to a science. They should sell that in a vial <laughs> because... Everything she does is calculated, which must be exhausting. But do we know the real Taylor Swift? She wants us to think that we do. How are celebrities selling themselves to us? Like, how do they get us on their sides? How are they produced to get the gaze? And all of these, like, self-produced documentaries that these icons are doing. Um, you know, Lady Gaga did it. Taylor did it. Beyonce did it. Celine Dion did it. They want us to think that we know them intimately. They want us to think that we're their friends, but it's all calculated, it's all capitalism. And I think that's why I personally prefer these like C-list or less icons. I just feel like it's, a, I understand that I am also getting duped. Like I, they're not gonna come to me with their problems, but it just feels a little more real because there's less pressure for Donna Murphy to be faking Instagram posts. I feel like she po she doesn't have a team who's posting for her. And if I had to choose a star who I think is the most real, Patti LuPone, there's never a question of what that woman is thinking. The, the act of idolization is a lot of fun, but when you talk about it like this, it's like, what are we, what are we actually doing? Like what, who are we actually idolizing and, and what am I spending my money on? And that's what it comes down to. What are we spending our money on? There's a huge disconnect between a mentor and an idol. One of them stands with us, able to coach us and teach us from experience, while the other stands aloof, asking for our attention and doing whatever they can to attract us to them. There's a third aspect to the principles mentioned earlier. We discussed rainbow washing, the pink dollar, but we also need to take a moment to discuss queer baiting here at the end of this discussion. According to Crystal Abaddon in her 2019 article, Yes Homo, Gay Influencers, Heteronormativity, and Queer Baiting on YouTube, we learned that there are people on the internet who are actively engaging queer audiences by pretending to be queer, whether through actions or words, in order to capitalize on our community. Abaddon concludes her article by saying, While queer baiting for commercial ends can be an effective self-branding and business strategy for some influencers, coming out, whether actual or as bait, is a privilege not equally accorded to everyone. In some societies and influencer subcultures, queer influencers who desire to publicize their sexuality and romantic relationships have to exercise self-restraint in order to maintain their personal safety or preserve their heteronormative self-brand and commercial interests. 
resorting only to token mentions to ambiguously express this aspect of their private lives with the safeguard of plausible deniability. Why do I bring this up now? Because I want to leave us with a warning. We need to be aware of the ways in which the media and those we idolize take advantage of us. Whether they are queer or not, it is an established fact that the queer community is profitable and, as such, we are being commodified and capitalized on more and more. So, while I won't use this to tell you what to do, how to spend your money, or who to look up to, I do think it is well within my rights to encourage you to stand up for yourselves, be cautious about who you support, and remember that they need you more than you need them. Until next time. Bye!